Heavenly Father, thank you for this new day and this new week. And as we gather together as a community of your people online, uh, we pray that your presence will be with us and your, your spirit would indeed be working through your word in our hearts, uh, blessing us, speaking to us personally, and encouraging us on our life's journey to the new creation, particularly uh, as we reflect on how we navigate through dark times and dark valleys. So thank you for this uh, book of Job and its important message. And we pray that uh, over the months, the two months ahead, when we work through this, uh, you would bless us through it and speak indeed in a way which is living and active and which guides us and encourages us on our life's journey with faith in Christ. Amen. The news had left Sally stunned and traumatized. She was unable to sleep and had completely lost her appetite. It was only seven days ago, but it seemed like an eternity. Her husband's words played round and round in her head. He had informed her in a stunning matter-of-fact manner that his heart was no longer in the marriage. And with that, he had departed the family home. Sally was now left on her own to care for their two young daughters. She had never considered the possibility of being a single mother. This was the sort of thing that happened to others, but not to her. And it seemed like their marriage of 12 years was over. In the months and the years that followed, Sally struggled with a sense of purposelessness. Her identity had been very much anchored in her role as a wife and a mother in a normal nuclear family. Now most of that was gone, and for Sally, life had now lost much of its meaning. Well, Sally's story is tragic and it's common. Uh, Sally did not have a Christian faith, and her story illustrates what Tim Keller was saying last week in his talk on meaning. If our primary meaning in life is based on things in this life, uh, like family or marriage, then ultimately they are not durable because they can be taken away from us. Now, the lyrics to the song we just listened to were not ones that Sally could claim for herself because she wasn't a Christian. She could not sing, but all I want is you. And in that sense, Sally's story is very different to, to that of Job because Job had a priceless resource that Sally didn't possess for facing life's traumas and life's tragedies. That is, of course, a personal relationship with God. And for Job, that would make all the difference. Well, the book of Job wastes no time in introducing us to its central character. Chapter 1, verse 1. In the land of us, there lived a man whose name was Job. And this man was blameless and upright. He feared God and shunned evil. Well, Job is an impressive character for two reasons. Firstly, he has a deep reverence and respect for God. We are told that he feared God. The fear of the Lord is not just about a healthy respect. It also, in a biblical sense, includes this 
relational devotion. Job both reveres God and loves God. And his reverence for God shapes his walk. He shuns evil. He is blameless and upright. He's not sinless, of course, but he is a man after God's own heart. So he's an impressive character, firstly, by means of being a godly man. But also, there's a second prominent feature to his life. Uh, He's also wealthy, or to be more accurate, he's uber-wealthy. We're told he was the greatest man among the people of the East. And an incredible list of his wealth and his standing is listed in chapter 1. Now, what's impressive is that Job's wealth hadn't corrupted him as frequently as the case. Uh, Job wasn't filthy rich. He was righteously rich. Now, everything is running smoothly in life for Job until, of course, calamity strikes. A mortifying string of disasters charts a devastating reversal of fortunes. Everything that he has is progressively stripped away. Uh, Firstly, he loses his wealth. His flocks are stolen or destroyed. Uh, Then he is stripped of his family. His children are all killed in a storm. Uh, Thirdly, he is stripped of his health with an outbreak of excruciating boils all over his body. Then he loses the spiritual support of his wife. Her counsel is hardly faith encouraging, is it? Chapter 2, verse 9. His wife said to him, are you still holding on to your integrity? Curse God and die. And finally, he even loses his friends. By the end of chapter 2, they are hanging in there. They sit with him in empathetic silence for seven days, and that is very impressive. But as we will see in chapter 3 onwards, when they finally do speak, their counsel eventually proves to be hollow. Although Job pours out his soul to them, they don't understand him. And in that sense, Job also loses the support of his friends. In the end, Job is a man who is left utterly alone with himself. All the good, healthy components to life have been ripped from his hands. Almost everything that makes up the substance of life in this world has been completely white-anted. Now, initially, Job's response is impressively godly. Chapter 1, verse 20. At this, Job got up, tore his robe, and shaved his head. Then he fell to the ground in worship and said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will depart. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. And we're told that in all this, Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. And even when his closest ally, his wife, goads him to curse God, he is steadfast. He refuses. Chapter 2, verse 10. He replied, you are talking like a foolish woman. Shall we accept good from God? and not trouble. And in all this, Job did not sin in what he said. And yet, as time passes, 
And as the book progresses, the weight of the darkness settles on Job. Like all of us, when tragedy strikes, Job starts to mull on those fundamental questions. Why? Why is this happening to me? How can God allow this? And indeed, the heart of the book, which is chapters 3 to 31, is where Job debates with his friends. Uh, They offer him their counsel. And yet, as we shall see, whilst it is well-meaning, it is fundamentally misguided. Uh, Job's friends have this simplistic equation. They say, if you are suffering, it's because you've sinned. Of course, their infamous counsel has carried over into a phrase that is still used in the English language today. We talk about Job's comforters, or the comfort that they offered is cold. And it's in these interactions with his friends that we get a glimpse of the turmoil within Job. As Job mulls and he processes, as Job groans and he wails, we hear the cries from his heart that are the cries also of our hearts in such times. Uh, Job puts voice to the fundamental needs and questions of human nature. And indeed, it's these that we are going to look at in this sermon series. Uh, Questions such as, how can I bridge the uncrossable gap between God and myself? Is there more to this life than just this life? Is there any hope that perfect justice will ever be delivered. How can we find and know God? What am I in relation to God? What is God in relation to me? And what is the positive purpose from this suffering? Can there be one? And we shall see how these fundamental needs and questions all find their fulfillment and their answer in Jesus. Uh, we can view with vivid clarity and colour answers to these yearnings for which Job could only see a shadowy outline. Hence, while we're calling this series, The Gospel According to Job. Uh, Unlike Job or his wife or his friends, uh, from the very beginning of the book, we have the benefit of knowing why Job is suffering. Uh, we are provided with the privileged access to the otherwise unseen spiritual realm. We are given security clearance to enter the situation room in heaven. And when we get there, we overhear a surprising interchange between God and Satan. And the subject of their discussion is Job. And we discern why all this suffering descends on Job. It's not a punishment for his sin. Rather, it's a test of his faithfulness. Chapter 1, verse 8. Then the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? There is no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. Does Job fear God for nothing? Satan replied. Have you not put a hedge around him and his household and everything he has? You have blessed the work of his hands 
so that his flocks and herds are spread out throughout the land. But stretch out your hand and strike everything he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. Here we see the master accuser in all his dark glory. Satan's challenge is like an arrow aimed for the very heart of God. As I've reflected on this, I've come to the conclusion that there is more going on here than initially meets the eye. There is an underlying subplot at play. Uh, it's worth us pulling into the lay-by for a few moments to think about this. Because I think that Satan is goading God. Satan is calling into question whether God's creative intention for humanity can ever be restored. Why did God make us? Uh, what is our highest purpose and meaning anchored in? It is, of course, all centered in a personal relationship with God. We were formed and fashioned to know and to love God. Our hearts are wired to find our deepest delights in our creator. And of course, what was Satan's crowning achievements in the garden as he seeks to undo all the goodness of God's creation? It was to fracture that relationship through, uh, through luring humanity into doubting God's goodness. Satan drove a wedge between God and people. And as the effects of the fall percolated down into the human heart, humanity's view of God became warped and darkened. People no longer cherished their relationship with God as the highest treasure of their lives. They were happy to accept the gifts of life and health and wealth, but they were no longer interested in acknowledging and thanking the giver. Romans 1 verse 21 says this. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. But their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. You see, God became a means to an end rather than being an end in himself. We have all at some time experienced the pain and the disappointment of being used by somebody. Uh, somebody takes an interest in us. They are friendly and supportive. And yet we discern after a while that they want something from us. And if we don't provide what they desire, their interest in us suddenly evaporates. How do we feel? We feel used and we feel abused because they didn't love us for who we are. They only wanted our stuff. They were nothing more than fair-weathered friends. And that is grievous. And that is true of how sinful, fallen humanity now treats God. We want the gifts, but we're not interested in the giver. And at best, fallen people are fair-weathered friends to God. If the gifts dry up, then they, we shake the fist and we throw in the towel. Many people today, of course, live their lives without any regard for God. 
And yet, strangely, when tragedy strikes, suddenly their belief in God springs to life, but not in a positive way. They, of course, become very angry with God. They blame him. Or closer to home, maybe you yourself have witnessed the tragedy of someone who claims to be a Christian, but then gives up their faith in the face of suffering. So you see, the accusation that Satan levels here against Job has plenty of precedence in the world. And yet we know God has not abandoned the world. God has intervened to restore what was lost. And his grace is at work powerfully to raise men and women back to the heights from which we have fallen. And through his grace, God makes it possible for rebellious fallen humanity to be drawn back to a healthy fear of the Lord. It's not just a reverence for God, but also a loving devotion for God. Through God's grace, it is now possible for us to love the giver, whether or not we have his gifts. Through his grace, we are no longer just fair-weathered friends. There is more fibre to the relationship than that. So I think it's safe to say that there is plenty of evidence of God's grace at work in Job's life. Later in chapter 13, Job will utter these amazing words. Though he slay me, yet I hope in him. Surely such words can only flow from a heart transformed by grace. So going back to Satan's accusation, can you see how nasty and cynical his accusation against Job to God is? I do wonder if Satan is effectively goading God. His charge is this. God, your grace isn't powerful enough to restore sinful fallen humanity. I think Satan is saying, I have frustrated your creation plan. The love relationship with humanity has been lost forever. The only reason they love you now, God, is because they want something from you. They are nothing more than fair-weathered friends. I've won and you've lost. And so the stage is set. God allows Satan to test the fiber of Job's relationship with God. When we reflect on our own lives, on our own experiences today, there will be occasions, of course, in our lives when we walk through dark valleys. We will suffer pain and we will suffer hardship. That is not a result of our sin. And like Job, the challenge is, will we keep trusting God and his goodness? Now, we each get to ask of ourselves the question that the Bee Gees posed in 1977. How deep is your love? Will we continue to love and trust God in the face of the tragedies of life? And yet the battle is not ours to fight unaided. For by his grace, 
God has planted that conviction in our hearts. And all we need is God, in the words of the song we heard earlier. Uh, for me, uh, the classic example of this in my own life was between 1987 and 1990. And I think I've shared this with some of you before. It was after I had graduated from university and was applying for career jobs whilst motorcycle dispatch riding in London. And for a period of three years, I had knockback after knockback, disappointment after disappointment after disappointment in my application for career jobs. At the time, I searched my heart and my life to see if it was God's way of rebuking me for sin in my life. And yet I concluded that it wasn't due to that. And yet no matter what I did, it seemed like God was hemming me in. And by the end of that period, I had become incredibly demotivated and discouraged. It took a Herculean effort just for me to put on all my motorcycle gear every morning and to go out for another day of grafting in the grime of the London streets. But by God's grace, I never turned my back on him. I remained reorientated to him. God's grace does transform the human heart, and it gives us a meaning that is anchored outside of this world. And consequently, as Tim Keller would say in the talk last week, that sense of meaning is durable. Uh, Peter's words to Jesus echoed the deep conviction of both Job's heart and my own heart in John 6, 68. Uh, Peter said, when all others were turning their back on Jesus, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. That's the evidence of God's grace at work in Peter's heart. Uh, looking back, I think those three years for me were a time of divinely ordained testing. But I can also now see how God graciously provided me with other resources to carry me through that dismal period, uh, not least in some very good Christian friends. Uh, fortunately, my friends weren't Job's comforters. They didn't trot out trite pat answers, but they did faithfully walk with me. And so it is that God in his grace provides for us in the midst of the dark night of the soul. God will test our faith, but God will not abandon us. God is faithful to us and he never leaves us. And when we do emerge on the other side of the dark valley, we are able to say with deeper and clearer conviction those words of that song, all I need is you. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, uh, the fact that any of us can hold on to and cherish a personal relationship with you is a result of the work of your grace in our hearts and our lives. That you are the one who has called us to you. That you are the one who has given life to our hearts and sown the seeds of desire for a relationship with you. And you are the one who has made that possible through the sending of the Lord Jesus Christ. So thank you that you are with us. We know that you do test our faith through times of hardship.
and darkness, but you never leave us and you never abandon us. And you do give us that conviction in our hearts that all we need is you. Thank you for that in itself, that conviction which Satan can never snatch away from us and which through your grace remains anchored in our hearts. Please help us, therefore, we pray, in the midst of our difficulties, to continue to trust you, the good and sovereign God, who will never leave us. Amen.